Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Run from the deeds of the flesh. Before we talk about putting on the deeds of the Spirit or walking in the Spirit, we need need this gap to be bridged. We need to be certain of our assurance of salvation, and then we're prepared to obey. And there's going to be an objection, um, because if we talk about being assured of our salvation, not just today, but tomorrow and you know five years from now, ten years from now, the rest of our life, there's going to be a, an objection, and there's going to be people who are going to say, if you tell people that they're assured of their salvation, they're going to abuse that assurance. And they're going to use that as a ticket. And I told you last week kind of the difference between what, what's the, the popular phrase, once saved, always saved, and eternal security or being secure in Christ. And I don't like the idea, and nobody should get the idea, that if you just pray a prayer, you can kind of get the assurance card in the back pocket. And, you know, you pull it out and say, look, I, you know, I, I prayed the prayer, I'm sure of my salvation. It's so much bigger than that and so much more glorious than that. However, if I am to preach this rightly, and if we understand this text rightly, we should get, people should be responding who do not understand, like Romans chapter 6, verse 1 anticipates. And here's what the anticipation is. If I preach this rightly, people are going to say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There are going to be people who come alongside of Romans chapter 5 and everything that's been said in Romans, and they're going to say, if that's true, if I'm really assured of my salvation, then I'm going to go all and just sin all that I want so that I can just make much of grace. And what Paul says is absolutely not. But there's always going to be people who hear the doctrines of grace preached, hear about the salvation of God, the assurance of our salvation, and they're going to hear it wrongly. And in their flesh, they're going to say, well, if that's true, then I'm going to go live the way I want. But if we're going to preach the gospel faithfully, and we're going to preach this faithfully, we've got to run that risk. Because the others, those who are in Christ, are going to see it, and they're going to stand in awe, and they're going to say, what can I do for him? I love him, and I want to obey him, and I want to give him all of my life, every aspect of my life, because he has been gracious to me. Salvation in Christ is all of Christ. It is not of ourselves. And today we get to see that yet again. So let's look at chapter 5, verses 12, and we'll read 12 through 14 and talk about that section before we talk about section 2 and section 3 and finish the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now the sermon title today is Federal Headship of Adam and Christ. What does that mean? Federal is another way of saying covenant. Covenant headship of Adam and Christ. And what's being established here in these two verses, these three verses, 12, 13, and 14, is that Something that Adam did was counted as something that we did. 
Adam was given in the Garden of Eden, and he was to relate this to Eve, a covenant of works. Do this. It was a, it was a garden of yes, you can do all of this. And if you do all of this, everything will be okay. There's one restriction, and that one restriction is do not eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do it, the day, of it, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And this was established, and Adam was morally innocent. He was created upright and pure in the garden, and Eve along with him. And so there was innocence in the garden. And there was one law given to him. You can do all of this. It was a garden of yes. You can do all of this except this one, one restriction. And what the text says is that sin came into the world through one man. And then the consequence of that sin committed by that one man, death, came to all men. Let me just ask you a question. You can please respond if you, you would like. Are you going to die? Why? Because of the sin of Adam. But the text tells us that there's something being established in Adam that we need to be made aware about. Because Adam did something, but that work, that consequence, says something about us and about what we did. It says that death came through one man, and then it says, because all men sinned. Because all men sinned. Now, Paul is establishing this fact. That what Adam did, he did as a representative of what we did. That's why all people die. The consequence of sin fall on all people everywhere throughout the history of the world. And Paul is wanting us to, this fact to be established, covenant headship. What Adam did, he did as a representative of humanity. And what we are held responsible for is what Adam did. Now it goes like this. All of us who are born after Adam... Even though we have not done anything yet, morally, we've come out of the womb and we've not sinned or obeyed or anything like that, what the text is telling us, that person who's born will one day die. And that person will die because they sinned as Adam sinned. Adam was a representative and we were united to that work of Adam. And so we have all made our choice. All of humanity has made our choice. We came in morally, what, what looks like morally neutral, but the reality is because of what Adam did, we come into this world already making our decision, our free decision. And that free decision was like Adam, to sin against God. We have made our choice. All of humanity, they don't come out morally neutral, they come out with a decision already been made. It's the same decision as Adam. We are not free. We are born bound in sin. We need to be set free. We are not born morally free. We are born in moral bondage. Adam was morally free, but because of Adam's sin and because of our sin in Adam, we are not born into this world, nor is anybody morally free. And Paul wants us to understand that Adam's actions were our actions. We, could not look, we cannot look at Adam and Eve and say, I would have done better. Or that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Adam and Eve. If it was just me there, I would have saved humanity. The Bible wants us to understand that we would have done the exact same things that Adam did. We would have sinned in the exact same way. Adam's actions were our actions. God gave him everything. And even though there was a yes to everything except one, Adam sinned against God and against Eve. He even threw his wife under the bus and he even blamed God 
for his own sin. He blamed Eve and God for his actions. And the Bible tells us that that's the same thing we have done. Every person who's ever existed has chosen themselves over God in that Garden of Eden. We were there. We were there in the Garden because Adam was there. Therefore, death has reigned since the fall. And then in verse 13 and 14, we see that even before the law of Moses was given, that would make it clear all of the sins of humanity in a, in a more clear way, even though the law of Moses was not given yet, death still reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned because people were lawbreakers even before the Mosaic law came and clarified all the sins of humanity. But, but what Paul wants us to see is that Adam was a type of Christ. Look at verse, verse 14, the second half. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So as Adam was a federal head or a covenant head, what, cov what that covenant head did is what humanity would do. Jesus is going to be a covenant head also. And what he's going to do is going to affect people like what Adam did affected people. And that's the argument. That's the argumentation. That's what the Holy Spirit is bringing. But, but we need some greater clarify, clarifying. We, we need Paul to explain a little bit more for us because it's federal headship, covenant headship. We don't live in a world that really understands that. The only thing that kind of comes close is, is that in sports you can kind of think through like the, the captain of the team or if somebody breaks the, the law of the coach, then the whole team is held responsible for breaking the law of the coach. There's somewhat of clarification of that idea, and you've probably been there before where one knucklehead on the team did something goofy and, and you all had to run line sprints for it. Okay, so that's a representation of the entire whole. One person representing the entire whole. And this is what's happening with Adam in the garden, representing humanity. But Paul is going to bring some clarification for us. Now, we're going to do something that's interesting here. The, the, the point of federal headship is established. And now, in verse 15 down through 17, we're going to see two groups of people now. And we're moving from everybody. So everybody, everybody's going to die because of the consequences from sin. And you're going to see the language switch from all, the word all, to the word many. And then later, we're going to switch back to the word all. And if we don't understand the structure of this argument here, we're going to get really confused. Because when Paul says all, and when he says many, what should be rising up in us, what we think thinking is, okay, Paul, is it all or is it many? Why are you saying all in Adam and then many in Adam and many in Christ? Because the language you'll see here in a second is somewhat confusing. So the first two verses, the first three verses, what Paul is simply establishing is federal headship. One person representing all people. And now we're going to see a shift. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, let's just pause. Now, do you see the confusion if we don't understand the structure of the argument? Is it many who died through one man's trespass or is it all who died? Paul, would you please tell us? Because at first he tells us it's all. And then we hear many. So, for the point of clarification, the first three verses are establishing covenant headship, and now we're switching to two groups of people. Many in Adam, and we're going to see many in Christ. So underneath this all, 
we're going to see a group of many and a group of many. Does that make sense? Okay, here we go. For if many died through the man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Okay, if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's work affected the many. So now we're, in, we're talking about humanity here, two groups. Adam's work is representative now of this group of many. Jesus' work also affects many. Many and many. And so we're moving from all in Adam to two groups of people under two different representatives. We're seeing two representatives here. And we're going to ask the question and get some answers. What do these representatives do for their group of people? What do they do for the many? And then we're going to conclude by asking the question, Are you? It's, there's like two people who have ever lived in the world, Adam and Jesus. And who do you belong to? That's the question that we're going to lead ourselves to here in a little bit. Who do you belong to, Adam or Christ? There's two representatives representing many. Now look at verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So what followed Adam's sin? What followed Adam's sin? Well, condemnation. Condemnation followed Adam's sin. But even though, and judgment, but even though transgressions grew and sin abounded, Jesus came, and what follows Jesus' life? What does it result in? Even though there were many trespasses, what Jesus gives is justification and life and righteousness. And it all comes through that one man, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from the, from the many. It doesn't come from people. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so if there's going to be righteousness on the scene, if there's going to be justification on the scene, if there's going to be forgiveness of sins on the scene, if there's going to be assurance of salvation on the scene, it's not going to come from people. It's going to come from Jesus as the representative of his people. These two representatives, Adam and Jesus. And so there's a concluding point in verse 18. We get some clarification. It kind of builds into verse 18. And verse 18 kind of brings it all together. And Paul begins to explain in greater detail exactly what he means. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now this is the point. And if we don't get the structure, we're going to all become universalists here. Because universalists take this verse right here, and they call for universalism. And here's what they say. You see, it says all, and you'll hear people say regularly, all means all, and that's all all ever means. Well, not all the time, actually, because we're not universalists. And there's an interesting passage. When we think about all of something, you can say all, we designate all for things all the time. 
when we say all of the bubblegum. Um, we're not talking about all the bubblegum in all the world. We're talking about all the bubblegum in the world. Can we gather up all the bubblegum? And what we understand is we're talking about all the bubblegum in this room. We're not talking about all the bubblegum in each house here. There's designations. Or when we say that all, if you're going to, to, to Florida and some people, somebody, oh yeah, we, we had some Florida folks who just got back from Florida. Uh, you go down to Florida and if, if you see a sign that say all beaches that way, you're understanding that means all the beaches in this community. You're not under, you, you, know, you know that it's not all the beaches in the entire world. What we see in verse 18 is a designation of the two groups of many. Okay, So as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... Now, who are these all men? It's all of the many that's all already been established. The many who are in Adam. This is not saying that all and everyone throughout the world is condemned in the sense that they will be condemned to hell. And then one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men, meaning all men everywhere. Therefore, everyone will be in heaven. This is not saying that everyone is justified. What it's saying is that Adam did something for all of his many. And Jesus did something for all of his many. This is not a verse about universalism. It's simply saying that anybody that's in Adam, all of them, the same results are coming to them because of what Adam did. And all that are in Jesus, all of them, the same results are coming to them because of what Jesus did for them. And so the question becomes for all of us, are you in Adam or are you in Jesus? Adam's trespasses leads to this condemnation. Jesus' obedience leads to this justification. And then the question is, who are you united with? Who are you united with? Are you united to Adam or are you united to Jesus? If you are united to Adam, then here's the, the brutal reality of Romans chapter 5. If you're united to Adam, condemnation and judgment is coming your way. And notice, because of the argument in 12 through 14, if you are in Adam, that is not God's fault. That is because of your sin, like Adam's sin. To be condemned requires nothing from God but his passive wrath. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And all humanity in Adam walked away from God. We have made our decision. We made our choice. And all those who are in Adam, if you're in Adam, all of those many that are in him will be condemned. And that is on them. God is not to blame for sinners being united with Adam. Sinners are. Because in Adam, like Adam, all willfully reject God and don't want him. Even though God has been exceedingly kind to everyone who is in Adam, the serpent and the woman were more dazzling than Christ was to Adam. Eve and that slippery, slimy serpent dazzled his eyes. The fruit on the tree he desired more than he desired the preciousness of Christ. And that is true universally of everybody who is in Adam. Jesus was not enough. God was not enough. But for those who are united with Christ, there are pretty staggering conclusions here. Remember, we're hammering home this doctrine of assurance of salvation. If you belong to Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you by grace have repented of your sins and trusted in Him, there are staggering realities about what Christ has done that are counted as your very doing. 
Because all that Christ has done, if you were in Christ, is counted as yours. If you are in Christ, then righteousness and justification is for you by that one man's act. By that one man's act, what Jesus did, He did as a federal or a covenant head. As Adam was a covenant head, so is Jesus. And what He does, what Jesus does, applies to all who are in Him. He is their representative. And so if you belong to Him, what He did is counted as what you did. Jesus' active obedience, therefore, in His life, obeying His heavenly Father even to the point of death, is counted as yours. If you belong to Him. That His very life, it's like He gives you His life. This is, this is now, this is your life. Everything I've done, everything I've accomplished, it, is, it belongs to you. Here, this is yours. If you are in me, if you belong to me, then everything that I've done and all that I am, it's counted as yours. You will be a very, called a very son of God. His perfect life was lived as a representative for his people so his people could be counted as living a perfect life. His death was counted as my death. If you're in Christ, you've, you, have, you have received the punishment for your sins because Jesus died for you and His death is counted as your death. And God will not punish you for that which He already punished Christ. God has already brought judgment upon His people because Jesus died in their place. And His death is counted as your death. Therefore, death is not coming your way. Death as judgment is not yours if you belong to Jesus. Jesus died in your place. The wrath of God came down on Him instead of coming on you. And that's a past event. Therefore, if you're in Christ, that's counted to you. Right, righteousness, life, reigning in life, all of this belongs to you. You're a child of God. You're united to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed. Adam failed in a garden. Jesus prevailed in a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, I will obey. I will go. Not my will, but yours be done. Adam in that Garden of Eden said, not your will, my will be done. Adam, when tempted by the enemy, agreed with him. Jesus, that second Adam, the true and better Adam, when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, he believes God and quotes God's word to the enemy. Jesus, our faithful big brother, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the second person of the Trinity, came to do the will of his heavenly Father. And beloved, as surely as he obeyed, as surely as Jesus obeyed in that garden and said, not my will, yours be done, you are counted as the very man or woman who prayed that same prayer in that garden. What he did was representative of what you get counted as doing. And you may see and experience the frailty of what it means to be a human, even a human who has the Holy Spirit in you, even a very child of God, and know that when you're weak, he is strong. What Jesus did, counted, is counted as what you have done. You know, Adam basically said, and I get this from R.C. Sproul Jr., Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife. And Jesus came and said, don't blame my wife, blame me. 
I want you to hear that. Who sins? The wife? Adam said, God, it's your fault. You gave me that woman. And Jesus came and said, I love that woman and I'll die for her. I'll take responsibility. Don't blame her. Blame me. The kindness of Jesus on display. And we are united with our representative. And the question to me as I'm thinking through union with Christ is I want to know how, how did I become united with Him? How do we get united with Christ? If you don't know Jesus this morning, how do you get in union with Him? Because if you're there, you're, you're sitting and thinking through these things, you ought to rightly be thinking, I don't want to be Adam. I, under, I don't want to be under Adam. I want to be in Christ. How do we get in Christ? And here's where I want to throw us on the mercy of God. And I want to go down deep this morning. Not deep as hard to understand, just deep as in supernatural, just otherworldly and, and glorious. I want you to see the mercy of God. How did we, why are we a Christian? Why are we saved? Like, how, how are we in Christ? And you look back and think about it, because I can kind of trace this back, and I can, I can go back 29 years at this point, 30 years, and I can say, as a five-year-old boy, I remember some of the very first memories that I've had as a little boy where I was convicted of sin. I just felt weird on the inside, and I was so embarrassed because my mom was the children's church director. Seth remembers that. We were in class together, and I was always getting sent to my mom because I was in trouble. George Sullivan, he would always just send me upstairs, and I'm always in trouble, man. I go up, I just feel so guilty. I'm embarrassing my mom. I'm embarrassing my dad. I know I'm not right with God. Something's just, and these are little, you know, five-year-old thoughts. And I remember just feeling, and I can, I went in, I walked in, and I talked to my mom and dad, and I said, I want to be saved. And that's when I was converted. I believe that. I think that's when the Holy Spirit of God changed me, and I was saved by God's grace. But my life with God and my union with Christ didn't start then. It goes way further back than that. And God's tender love and affection didn't start in 1989. It started way before that. Before I ever knew anything about God. And I want us to see this about union with Christ today. The fount of all salvation, the glorious treasures in Christ, flow from this doctrine of union with Christ. And in the order of our salvation, we will be glorified. Everything flows from being united in Christ. If you're in Christ, then everything that's true about Christ will one day be yours. And right now, as Jesus is sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Heavenly Father in Ephesians chapter 1, there is some realm in which His people, we are seated with Him. It's a present tense. We are seated with Him right now. Present tense for those who are in Christ are seated right now in the heavenly places with Him. Okay? If you're in Christ, if you're not united with Him, all who are united with Him are seated with Him right now in the heavenly places. And He did all this so that He might show the immeasurable riches in His kindness to those who have experienced His mercy. And so how does this union with Christ thing, this doctrine of being united with Christ, whatever Christ did, is counted, we're counted as His, like we're all sewn together. And what Christ did, He did as His, we are His body, He is the head, and if He is the head of the body of Christ, and we are His body, then we're united to the head. 
Where does this start? Where does it begin? And I want to take you again. A few uh, months ago, I talked about how far does the grace of God go down. It goes all the way down. How far does the grace of God go back? It goes all the way back. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at two supplemental texts this morning. Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1. And I just want you to think about this. And I don't want you to be, just think about this. There's no reason to be nervous about Bible words, no matter what they are. And if you'll hear this in the way that it's presented, this is so loving. This is so loving of God because we're told it's loving of God. And we're going to read verses 3 through 6. Here's what it is. And we're answering the question, how do I get united with Christ? How can I become in union with Him? How can I belong to Him? How, how, what, is this, what are the mechanics of it? Where does it start? Look at this. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So there's those words, in Christ. It's the same thing we're talking about today. We're, so that means we, are, we belong to Him, in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Let's just pause for a second. My life with God did not start in 1989. It started before the foundation of the world. Before I was born. And we ask, why? I really want to throw us on the mercy of God this morning. And this is what God's grace does, our union with Christ does. And we think about how are we in Christ. We're in Christ because God chose us to be in Him. He chose you, beloved. That's mine. She's mine. He's mine. Not because of anything in us that God got God's attention. This is before we were born. It's not that God looked through the corridors of time and gathered all those that, that looked better than the others and said, okay, I'm going to pick them because they've separated themselves out of the rest of humanity. As we were in the mess of humanity, just as messed up, by the sheer grace of God, He chose you. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Even as He chose us before in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Listen to these words. In love, He predestined us. Now, God's love and predestination are not opposed to each other because it tells us they're not opposed to each other. If you love God's love, then we love this word predestination. And if you love predestination and don't love God's love, something's wrong as well. And if you don't see the tender mercy of God to all people everywhere, then you're missing it. In love, He predestined. And so for those who love God's love, we must, must love what we're told to love. And He predestined us, what? Just for some static salvation? Just for our sins to be forgiven? He just chose us some arbitrary, in some arbitrary way and just said, I'm just going to forgive your sins. Oh no, it's more tender and it's more loving than that. He didn't come just to give, bring the gavel down and say your sins are now forgiven. He wanted you and His family as His children. And so we're told... In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. This is deeply personal. God loves you, 
And he sent his son to rescue sons and daughters, to make family, to bring us to the table of God. We are in Christ because God chose us to be. And I know questions in your mind may be firing up. Well, what if, what if, what if? Hold on. Just see this, that God chose you to be in Christ. He predestined you for this purpose. Your salvation was planned from eternity past. And if you're in Christ, it's solely by the grace of God. And when somebody asks you why you're a Christian inside of us, really what we should say, it should be just an internal shrug of the shoulders and just say, but by the grace of God, there you go I. It's just God's grace. I can't tell you a reason why other than just God's grace. I can't tell you that something was something about me. I can't tell you it was something I did when I was five years old. I can't tell you it was something in me at all that would get God's attention or anything like that. The only reason I can stand before you and say I'm a Christian man is I just want to say God has been merciful to me and he's been kind to me. And Charles Spurgeon said so wisely, he said, if if God didn't choose me, I would have never chosen him. And that's the doctrine that we're looking at in Romans chapter 5 is that we all went aside in Adam. And if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. But he loved me first. And I love him because he first loved me. He has been so kind to me. And I have not deserved it or merited it in any way more than the most heathen person in all the world. I don't deserve it more than the... the I mean, fountainhead, I mean, like the, the major, major pillars of evil in our world. We look at Pol Pot, when we look at Adolf Hitler, when we look at Mussolini and all these dictators throughout the world who have done all these terrible things. I can look at them and turn my nose up, or I can say I would be in the exact same place to them as them if it, for eternity if it was not for God's grace. But God has been so kind to me but by the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, for the sake of time, if you can turn there if you want, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Here's what it says, And because of Him, which is God, because of God, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Okay, why am I in Christ Jesus then? And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why am I in Christ? Because of God. That's why I'm in Christ. Because of God. Because of Him who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the fact that I've got it together more than other people? Boast in the fact that I've taken God's grace and ran with it in better ways than anybody else has? Boast in it that I have figured out in an apologetic manner why God exists and why should, oh, I should repent of my sins and trust in Jesus? Why it was the most rational decision? No, boast in the Lord. Give glory to God who is kind and merciful. Where Christ is, I am. What Christ did, I did. By His obedience, I am justified. And I have life. And I shall reign. Your salvation, friends, brothers, sisters, was secure before you took a single breath. Before you came out of the womb, He knew you. He knit, to get, knit you together. And His tender love and affection did not wait for you to clean yourself up. He came to you. And He saved you. And it was not because of you in any way to be in Christ is to be a recipient of the sheer sheer pure grace of God 
for we did nothing to earn it or get it. He has lavished it upon us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if I, am to put, if I am put into Christ, then it was I who was crucified with Him. I died with Him. I am risen with Him. I am in the heavenly places with Him. I am in Christ. That is the way we should look at it. And as long as we do this with certainty and assurance, we will never be shaken. You are in Christ, beloved. You are in Christ, so the, to the unsaved, we ask the question on this side. The, we, we looked at the, the, cosmo, like the, cos, like the, the, the grand picture of this, of God's grace. How does that grace get applied? How does that union get applied? I think it was Alistair Begg who said one time, when we call people to repent of their faith, repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, we tell them what the Bible tells them and we believe it. That whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And with everything in me, I believe that with every ounce in me. Because the Bible tells me, Whosoever will come to Christ will be saved by Christ. Anybody out there, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, if you will come to Him, He will save you. And I hope you understand the paradox of what I'm saying. You should be saying, it sounds like you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. I am because I'm talking about supernatural realities. And we need to affirm all that the Bible says. And when we say that, when we call people, will you come to him and plead and we beg you to be reconciled to God? God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is literally pleading, please, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Come to him. Trust in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody, everybody, come to him. Come and drink the river of life and have it. Please, will you come? Will you repent? And if they will, they'll be saved. To the unsaved, the call is to believe. And that call is to everyone. And if those people, if people will believe, they will soon come to discover as they walk through the door, as Alistair Begg says, that says on top, whosoever will come, and we believe that, whosoever will come, as anybody in the mass of humanity walks through that door, this wonderful, glorious, paradoxical mystery that keeps Christian minds shouldn't be in confusion. It should inspire worship as we think about such glorious things. We look back at that door and that person who walked through that door thinking, I did this, I did this, looks back at that door and over the door it says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And we stand in awe and say, this truly is the grace of God. It's God's mercy on me. Nobody gets into this thing because of us. We only get into this thing because of Him. What Jesus did is counted as what we did. And if you were in Adam, what Adam did is what you did. And the hope to the unsaved this morning, the call to those who would be out there or to anybody you know in your life, anybody you know in your life that doesn't know Jesus, we should call them to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you believe, you'll discover that and you'll discover the grace of God in the rest of your life. It's just going to be like treasure trove after treasure trove of grace because you're going to uncover and see, wow, this really is about God and not about me. The hope for the unsaved and your hope before you were saved is not in you. It's not inside of you. It's not living in there. The hope of individual salvation isn't in the heart of of any person. The hope for anyone in this world to be saved is in the very heart of God. And the hope of anybody 
kids, family, friends, neighbors is not in them. It's in God. And he will in no way cast out anyone who will come to him. Come, 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 believe, drink of this fountain, Jesus. Believe in him, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. And now I want you to see this. I want you to be assured of your salvation because we're going to go into next week. By no means, we shouldn't live into sin. How can we who died to sin because we died in Christ, how can we still live in it? And we're going to talk, start talking about mortification. Let's murder sin, how about it? Let's get after it. Let's kill it. Let's start walking in obedience in greater ways we ever have before. Let's go to war with the enemy and with the flesh. But if we're going to go to war with the enemy and the flesh and not get the pants kicked off of us, we need to know we're in Christ. We need to be assured of our salvation, that we're saved before we get started. Before we take up arms and go to battle, just know that He's won the war. We sing about it. And look at this. Sin can't outgrace God. And I need to know that as I'm on this life path, as I'm walking with Him. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in, in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the law came to show how bad trespasses truly are. That's what it says. The law came to increase trespass. So when the law came and, and, and says, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't steal. When the law came, people realized, oh, I'm sinning in greater ways they did before. But no matter how big the increase of sin, here's what's so astounding. Grace is greater still. It abounds more, than, more and more. Let me ask you, how much sin is in the world right now? Turn on, take a remote, turn on that TV and watch the news or get on the internet and read some articles about current events. Get on Twitter and, and just read what people are saying back and forth between the left and the right. Is there a lot of love right now in this country for each other? There's not, is there? Is there a lot of sin in this world right now? For goodness sake, trafficking people? Sin is pretty astounding, is it not? It's everywhere we go. It's in here. We see it everywhere. Sin is massive. Sometimes it's all we can see around us. And here's what the Bible's telling us. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace is bigger than any sin in your life. And any sin ever committed out there from the worst of Holocaust to the worst of sex trafficking, God's grace abounds still. He is that powerful. Our sins are many. We sing it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And beloved, we need to know this. If we're going to walk with Christ all the days of our lives, we need to be reminded that His grace is greater than our sin and is greater than any sin out there. And His mercy is upon us. He's lavished it upon us. It has personal application. It has universal application. But this morning, brother and sister in Christ, lift your head. Don't be in sorrow. Rejoice in the Lord always. Your sins are many. 
got it. His mercy's more. Your sins feel like they're too hard to overcome. He's already overcome them for you. You feel like there's no hope for growth. You feel like you can't hold on. You're in Christ. You are His. You belong to the God of the universe, not just as some static figure that He doesn't care about, but as a son or daughter of God. You belong to Him. And if that's, your, that's true, then lift your head and weep no more. You belong to Him. If that doesn't prepare you for battle, to take up the sword, I don't know what will. To know that the victory has already been won is so glorious. Grace reigns through righteousness. And the righteousness of Christ in you. And you are being led to eternal life. Beloved, you are sure in your salvation by the work of Christ in Christ alone. If you don't know him this morning, I call you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And if you do, you'll find that he has set his affection upon you, not just today, but before you were even born. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. Jesus, I thank you that I have brothers and sisters in this room, and I'm told that your work was not just for me, but it was for all of us and for anybody who would come to you. It's for the masses. It's for the world. It's for anybody who would have you. And Lord, I, I thank you for family. And I pray that you would unleash us to sing about your grace this morning. As we sing these songs, I pray you'd be deeply personal. I thank you that, that you've brought us into a family who can together sing of your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And I pray these words would be so true to us. Help us to respond. God, I pray you would bring joy into this room. Grant repentance for those who are walking in sin. Grant repentance. For those who don't know you, I pray that they would turn and see the glory of the cross. And they would believe in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's